1: Hello everyone and welcome to the series on Mormonism for the New Books Network. I'm your host Daniel Stone and I have a terrific guest tonight. It's uh, Larry Morris and we're going to talk about his brand new book called A Documentary History of the Book of Mormon. It's published by Oxford University Press. It's come out this year. It's a fantastic book and I'm just so excited to have Larry on the show. So Larry, thank you so much for being on. We really appreciate it.
0: Thanks Daniel. I appreciate being here.
1: Thanks. So Larry, just to kind of jump into it, could you just let us know a little bit about yourself, like your background,
0: what you've, what you've published in the past? Oh, you bet. Uh, I was born and raised in Idaho Falls, Idaho, and uh, I attended college at Brigham Young University. I have a uh, bachelor's in philosophy and a master's in American literature, and I was very interested in writing uh, fiction fiction in those early days and uh the first thir- first things that I published were uh, short stories and I published a novel in the 1980s with signature books. Very cool. But as I I was writing fiction, I got more and more interested in writing historical fiction and eventually Oh, about 20 years ago, I became very interested in trying my hand at a narrative nonfiction, and started working on two different kinds of history: uh, Mormon history, especially the early history of the uh, coming forth of the Book of Mormon and the founding of the Church. I was also interested, especially in Lewis and Clark. So I kind of started doing research on both of those talk- topics. And around 2000, I started publishing articles on both Mormon history and the history of Lewis and Clark. And I might add that uh, my wife, Deborah, and I live in Salt Lake City. We have four children and eight grandchildren. And she's a second grade school teacher. Oh, nice. So, and I mean, I think you're being
1: modest. You're an award-winning historian for Lewis and Clark. Is that correct? I mean, you've published quite a bit on it.
0: Yes, I have. I got really quite (laughs) interested in it, and especially in what became of the uh, Lewis and Clark party after the expedition, and I published first articles on that subject, and then I published a book called The Fate of the Corps with Yale University Press, and I got a lot of opportunities to speak in 2004, the year the book was published, because that was kind of the 200th anniversary of the beginning of the Lewis and Clark expedition. So I've really enjoyed uh, both kinds of research. And the Lewis and Clark research kind of naturally involved into research on the early fur trade because several of the Lewis and Clark folks uh, came back west as fur traders. Okay. So for all these years, I've kind of juggled back and forth between Mormon history and early Western history. And I just really enjoyed both of them.
1: Nice, yeah. Well, it seems like a good stepping stone to kind of jump into Mormon history, especially studying Lewis and Clark and the expedition out west. I mean, you're kind of getting that foundation of American history and how the how just how the nation in general is just expanding culturally. I mean, just geographically. So, how did you get involved? So, you you said you went to BYU. I'm assuming you were raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So Uh, then, how did you get involved? with the Joseph Smith papers project and how did you kind of get jump into Mormon history? Was, was Lewis and Clark like a stepping stone to that? Or were you always interested in Mormon history your whole life?
0: I I wasn't, you know, at the time I was attending college, like I said, I was interested in literature and philosophy and kind of toyed with the idea of getting a PhD in philosophy, but I ended up uh, going into editing. I was an, an editor for uh, my career. I technically retired a few years ago. And uh, I think, I don't remember which I got interested in first church history or Lewis and Clark, but about the same time. And of course, you're dealing with a very similar time period since Joseph Smith was born during the Lewis and Clark expedition. You know, he was born in 1805. <laughs> And Lewis and Clark left St. Louis in 1804, and they returned in 1806. So I think kind of the the fact that the time period was very similar just made those two research topics very compatible. Yeah, it seems like it. And how did you get involved with the Joseph Smith Papers Project? Like I said, I was working in the editing field, and I was in the computer industry for about 18 years. And in 2002, I applied for an opening at the uh, Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship at Brigham Young University and got a job as an editor. And so I got seriously into Mormon history at that point. And eventually... I got very interested in the Joseph Smith papers. You know, the first uh, article I published on Mormon history uh, dealt with Oliver Cowdery, who was one of the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon. And that was even before I got my job at BYU. So I had that interest and I kind of continued doing research on Oliver Cowdery and the uh, early history of the Book of Mormon. And the, the Joseph Smith papers just fit so well with that interest that uh, I believe it was in 2006, I applied for a job at the Joseph Smith papers and, and got that job. And so it just fit in with all of the uh, research, both personally and professionally, that I'd been doing for the uh, previous few years. Okay, very cool. Yeah, and...
1: You know this book that you've just published, a documentary history of the Book of Mormon. It's phenomenal. It's just as good as anything that's published by the Joseph Smith Papers Project, in my opinion. It's very thorough. It's an excellent read. You've done a great job editing it, and I love your uh, I love your historical introductions for every single uh, document that you include within it. It really seems that your the Joseph Smith Papers was the background to publish this book, and I'm 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 just assuming. Is that correct?
0: That's absolutely true. Yes. I really, I really enjoyed working on the Joseph Smith papers, and they've got an amazing team of historians. And they're, uh for any given document, as you know, they'll have an uh, historical introduction, and then they'll have extensive footnotes that really help you understand both the documents themselves and the uh, historical setting for those documents. And I really loved that work, and I admired that the the work the historians there were doing. And so, and since I already had this interest in the uh, the early history of the Book of Mormon, it, all of those things meshed so well that uh, after I retired from the Joseph Smith Papers, I really wanted to do that same kind of work. So. Uh, my documentary history follows kind of the same methodology and the same format as the Joseph Smith papers. And so even though I had retired from the uh, church officers, the church history library, I felt like I was doing very similar work and, and really enjoying it just like I had at the Joseph Smith papers. Nice. Yeah. I mean, so I had another question. So the Joseph Smith papers
1: covers a lot of, you know, the early days of the publication of the Book of Mormon. And obviously it goes on further, but I really liked your book. I mean, first of all, it's phenomenal because you got Oxford to publish it. So first of all, that just goes to show how good it is. But second of all, you really had just honed in specifically on the publicate on basically Joseph Smith, finding the golden plates and the publication of the Book of Mormon. And this book is a meaty book. I mean, you, I mean, really, I guess I wanted to ask, is there, I mean, it just seems to me that there's a lot of information in this book that might not necessarily be in the Joseph Smith papers, correct? So, like, no, so somebody might not say to you, like, oh, well, a lot of this stuff's already covered in the Joseph Smith papers, so why would you publish a separate book? I mean, you really did a lot more extensive work
0: within this work, correct? Uh, Yes, of course, part of that is because of the nature of the Joseph Smith papers, they consider when they defined quote joseph smith papers they included anything that joseph himself wrote they included uh, letters and other uh, documents that were directed to him uh documents that he uh, you know legal uh documents or church administration documents that mention him and they include uh histories, for example, that he did not write himself, but he commissioned other people to write. So there's quite a number of important documents that just by the very nature are not included in the Joseph Smith papers. Uh, For example, Joseph Smith's mother, Lucy Mack Smith, wrote a wonderful memoir of the uh, Smith family. And it's quite a crucial research for early church history but it is not included in the Joseph Smith papers because it's not something that was commissioned by Joseph Smith. It was written after his death. And that's just a good example of a very crucial source that is uh, not, not included in the Joseph Smith papers. And so I included things like um, many of the uh, the Joseph Smith neighbors gave affidavits in 18. 18- 34 kind of talking of their experience with the smith family and of course those are not included in the joseph smith papers But I think they're very relevant To a history of the coming forth of the book of mormon So I include quite a number of uh, Documents that are not in the joseph smith papers.
1: Yeah, and it was there was a lot of new stuff in there i had never even read or heard of before i'm assuming you i don't know if you've heard anybody but any from anybody from the outside just or from scholars within mormon studies i'm assuming that would be the their their knowledge as well just i mean just the just the the breadth of what your book has covered is pretty impressive i mean how did you find all this documentation like where did you know to look
0: well the two key sources i immediately went to Uh, were Dan Vogel's Early Mormon Documents, he has five volumes, I had purchased those as they came out, they started coming out in the early 1990s if I remember correctly, and for several years, every few years, there would be a new volume of Early Mormon Documents, and of course, he covers more than just the Book of Mormon, but uh, his research is really amazing. And so that was a key resource for me. Uh, the Joseph Smith papers themselves was a key res- resource, and then uh, looking at uh, biographies of Joseph Smith and just uh, kind of reviewing my research. I've been doing serious research uh, since the late nineteen nineties when I went to Vermont and did the Oliver Cowdery research, you know. And so just my personal files early Mormon documents, Joseph Smith papers, and kind of the, uh, I tried to keep up with the articles that had been published the last several years, and the key books, and so once you get rolling, then you frequently find something in someone's bibliography that turns out to be valuable, and that'll lead you to something else, and so you're kind of hopping from one thing to another. And then at some point, you kind of have to try and get systematic about it. But that was kind of how I came up with the documents that I wanted to include.
1: Nice. It sounds like a treasure hunt.
0: It was fun. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed it.
1: Yeah. So how did you decide what to include? or And were there times where you kind of were on the fence of what to include and what not to include?
0: Um. First of all... I wanted to get uh, firsthand documents. So for example, when, uh, you know, Emma Smith's father, Isaac Hale, was opposed to uh, Emma's marriage to Joseph Smith. And he was never, uh, he never converted to Mormonism, was always skeptical of Joseph Smith, but, he left a first-hand document talking about his experience with Joseph. And to me, that's a perfect example of the kind of source I wanted. Because he was on the scene. He's not getting these things second-hand. And he's talking about his personal experiences with Joseph Smith. And he recorded his statement in 1834, which is relatively easy. So, I mean, relatively early. So... Uh, for me, the most important documents were firsthand documents that were created close to the time of the event itself. And that includes hostile statements from neighbors of the Smiths or from uh, neighbors of Isaac Hale down in Pennsylvania. And it also includes uh, statements from uh, people who believed Joseph Smith. And good examples of that would be uh, Lucy Max Smith, his mother, and uh, the three witnesses, uh, David Whitmer, Oliver Cowdery, and Martin Harris. So that was my first priority, was to get those kinds of uh, statements. And then I also wanted to get what I considered important second-hand statements, from people who may have uh, gotten their information, not from Joseph, but from someone else. So there are uh, statements from people who didn't talk to Joseph personally, but they talked to Joseph Smith Sr. There's, uh, there are statements from people who uh, didn't talk to Joseph, but talked to Lucy Mack Smith, or they may have talked to Martin Harris. So you kind of consider those uh, secondhand witnesses of what Joseph himself Claim to have experienced. And I would always rank these uh, by these categories, whether or not they were first or second hand or even third hand. And also when that statement or that article or whatever it was, was first uh, published or recorded, going from the earlier to the later. So we have uh, in the book Uh, documents as early as 1828 and as late as the uh, 1930s, when people who talked directly to Martin Harris, one of the three witnesses, recorded their account of that event in in the 1930s. So it covers quite a spectrum. And when I, uh, so those criteria had a lot to do with what documents I used and Which documents I rejected, then you also deal with the fact that uh, someone like David Whitmer, he gave many interviews about his experience as one of the three witnesses, and of course there's a volume uh, published which is strictly that's all it contains are David Whitmer interviews. So there I couldn't include uh, very many of those at all. So I tried to find some representative examples when I knew that a single person had given several different accounts. And I proposed to, uh, after Oxford University Press expressed interest in the book, I kind of did a rough estimate of of how many words I thought would be suitable, both for the length of the book and to try and cover the material, you know. (laughs) And I proposed a book to Oxford that was uh, 250,000 words long, and they accepted that idea. So from that point on, I also had that in mind. And it worked out fine. I thought that was about the right length. Uh, so I didn't, kinda, I didn't really have any major conflicts of having to exclude uh, certain documents that I thought were important. It all worked out, and I felt quite good, quite good about what was finally published in the book. Wonderful. Yeah, I really appreciated
1: how you included sources from all different walks of life, people that believed, people who didn't believe. And it was really interesting reading both sides of the, you know, both sides of the coin. And over time, and what I really liked about your book and I thought you know I really appreciate you talking about you know your mindset and the methodology behind putting this book together cuz to me that's always really fascinating are the nuts and bolts of how people actually you know think about books before they start writing I mean really that's the crux of authors and you know their work and it's often, it's something it's often things that we don't talk about yeah so I really appreciate you talking about it but one thing I really another thing I appreciated about your book was that you talked about the struggle and the difficulty it is Dealing with, I mean, most religions are grassroots religions, right? But Mormonism is certainly no exception. It's a grassroots religion. There aren't a lot of primary sources specifically during that timeframe. It's not like Joseph Smith was walking around and the people that were walking around with him recording every single thing that was happening, especially as the public, you know, especially when Joseph Smith is receiving these angelic visitations, especially very early on in the religion. A lot of these documents, as you had brought out, were much later on. And can you kind of go into that a little bit and just kind of the difficulty, but also the treasure troves of history in general and how religious history has that difficulty?
0: You know, uh, as I worked on the book, the thing that surprised me the most was that for a very crucial time period from uh, September of 1823 to September of 1827, this was in Joseph's said that he received the uh, visits from the angel Moroni, who informed him of the gold plates, and eventually he obtained those plates and translated them to produce the Book of Mormon. For that crucial time period of 1823 to 1827, there is not a single extant document that mentions the Book of Mormon. Now, to me, that was just amazing. In Lewis and Clark terms, it would be similar to uh, Lewis and Clark taking their trip west, and then getting back and not producing any documents about the expedition until the expedition was done. The, to me, that would be the, the fitting parallel. And of course, in Lewis and Clark scholarship, the key source uh, for historians are, are the journals kept by Lewis and Clark and. Uh, three or four of the men during the expeditions. Those are an invaluable uh, primary source. And for the Book of Mormon, you don't have anything for a crucial uh, period of of Book of Mormon history. So that's the first uh, difficulty any uh, historian of Mormonism faces, is that uh, you have plenty of people who talked about that time period later on. You know, in the 1830s and Uh, for several decades thereafter, people would give their reminiscences of what happened during those four years, but not a single document that was created during that period that survived. So with both uh, those who were hostile to Joseph Smith and those who were friendly to him, you have the problem that uh, by the time they recorded their reminiscence their memory had already been colored by the events that had happened in the meantime and so that's a, a kind of a historical difficulty that, that any historian has dealing with this time period of how you're going to make judgments and uh, then uh, starting in really st- in 1828 there's very little that I was able to include in in my book. But starting in 1829, you start getting a lot of documents related to the Book of Mormon. For example, uh, the Book of Mormon was not published until March of 1830. But in 1829, starting in June and going through the rest of that uh, calendar year, newspaper articles about the Book of Mormon started appearing. And you start having uh, people attempting to describe the contents of the book. And quite a number of uh, newspaper columnists were mocking the book. But uh, no one had had the opportunity to actually read the Book of Mormon during that period. So now you're dealing with uh, newspaper articles and uh, statements by onlookers uh, regarding the Book of Mormon before it's even published. And then, of course, uh, over the next few years after the Book of Mormon was published, you, you have quite a wealth of uh, information dealing with the Book of Mormon, which is very important. So you go from having nothing there at the, uh, at the beginning, uh, or in 1823, for example, you have no, no source material at all, but in 1829, you have quite a bit, and by 18, let say 1880, you have people like uh, many neighbors have recorded their reminiscences. Lucy Mac Smith, William Smith—that's Joseph Smith's younger brother—and quite a host of people who, over the years, recorded reminiscences about those key years. So. A lot of things uh, to deal with in deciding uh, which documents are more authoritative than others. And I think that's where it's important. Anytime you have a document uh, to compare it to other documents that you have. And uh, see what those, uh, for example, a, a person hostile to Joseph Smith and a person friendly to Joseph Smith may have made certain claims that were similar. And to me, that's worth a lot, to have both of those types of witnesses say the same thing. But if you have a person who says something that no one else corroborates, then I think there's reason to be skeptical of it. So during the research and compilation of all these documents, there were quite a few opportunities where it was important to evaluate the sources and see which sources I felt were most authoritative. And that was always uh, an effort at uh, historiography and really didn't depend on whether those documents were favorable or not favorable toward uh, Joseph Smith himself.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you touched on something that I wanted to ask you. You know, because you have so many different sources from, you know, different people, believers, non believers alike, what were some of the similarities and differences that you noticed between them? Did you find anything that surprised you?
0: One thing that's interesting is that uh, many of the neighbors did believe that Joseph Smith had plates. Now, part of the history of this is. That uh, during this, uh, you know, during the early 1800s in both uh, upstate New York and throughout New England, there was a lot of treasure seeking going on. And people were searching for uh, such treasure as gold or silver mines. And they were also searching for the kind of treasure that might have been left behind by pirates or others who had obtained some kind of wealth, uh, coins, for example, and had buried their treasure somewhere. So There's all kinds of treasure seeking going on. And throughout the area, uh, there were seers who used uh, stones or divining rods or some other artifact to help search for treasure. And uh, this was common throughout uh, New England and New York. And uh, Michael Quinn points out, he's a a Mormon historian, quite prominent, who points out that in the uh, area of New York, upstate uh, western New York, where the Smith family lived, virtually every village had one or more seers who helped people search for treasure. And uh, the young Joseph Smith was one of those seers. He used a stone uh, to help his father and some of the neighbors uh, search for treasure. And uh, some of the uh, neighbors felt that uh, when they heard the story of Joseph Smith discovering gold plates, they felt like a share of of the wealth that would come from these plates. Belonged to them because they had kind of been partners, so to speak, out searching for treasure with the Smith family. And uh, David Whitmer learned about the uh, plates. He lived about 30 miles away in uh, Fayette, New York. In 1829, he was in Palmyra uh, near the Smith home uh, just on farming business. And he started hearing about these gold plates and he went out to interview some of these. He got interested in this and went out and talked to some of the Smith neighbors. And that was basically what they told him was that uh, Joseph Smith had been involved with them in in searching for treasure. And now he had discovered these plates and uh, they felt like they should share in the wealth. And so from the start, the neighbors are not the neighbors that did not uh, believe Joseph Smith's story about the angel were still open to the idea that he had indeed discovered gold plates and that those plates were valuable. So there's not a great deal of skepticism among the neighbors about whether Joseph had plates or not. Many of them assumed that he did. Of course, they probably th- thought that he just uh, found those digging for treasure rather than being visited by an angel and of course those who converted to mormonism they believed that joseph smith had been visited by an angel who directed him to the plates but you do have that thing in common that both the uh the hostile neighbors and the believers kind of acknowledged that there were gold plates and of course the fact that uh, Joseph Smith had used his seer stone to search for treasure for many of the neighbors, uh, this was just proof to them that, that uh, his having plates didn't have anything to do with uh, religion or with uh, Jesus Christ, but really was just part of his treasure seeking. And the, uh, Those who joined the Mormon church after it was organized in April of 1830 believed that Joseph Smith had been directed from an angel from 1823 and uh, also believed that uh, he had had earlier visions. So they see it from quite a religious uh, perspective. And Isaac Hale was a good example of a person who was skeptical from the start, really didn't think there was much to this uh, treasure-seeking idea, and uh, Joseph Smith Sr. and Jr. Had, had stayed in the Hale home when they were searching for treasure in 1825. And he he was a good representative of the people who believed that Joseph Smith's uh, treasure-seeking had, invo- had evolved into kind of a religious idea. but. They didn't think there was anything to it. So that's a very interesting dynamic.
1: Yeah. Another point, I I love what you're talking about, because another thing that I really enjoyed about your book, and it really highlights it, and you're bringing it out now fully, is this idea. I mean, the Book of Mormon is a cultural artifact, and it might sound weird to say that, because the gold plates, nobody... We don't. They, nobody has seen them, right? I mean, like you said, other than the witnesses that Joseph Smith showed them to, or the three witnesses that saw them through, you know, through a vision. Nobody has seen, or in, in, in the few other people that got to see it that you, your book points out, nobody ha- has actually seen these plates. They don't. They don't exist anymore in the sense that you know people can't touch them. You know, Joseph Smith says that he gave them back to the angel, but what you, but what you're pointing out is that people genuinely believe that he had gold plates whether they saw it in religious terms or not and there was a product that came out of those gold plates which was the book of mormon and it was this this actual book so you know a lot of other you know religious texts you know like uh, for instance like you think of the quran you know it's 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 a dictation by an angel well joseph smith actually says like no he actually has something physical and then this holy text comes out of that. So I what, what I really liked about your book was you really show that the Book of Mormon is a hidden cultural artifact if that makes any sense where it doesn't exist anymore but yet look at the impact that these, you know, gold plates quote unquote had on American history and just, you know, Mormonism in general.
0: Uh, yes, because really the Book of Mormon was the key event in the founding of uh, Mormonism. And it was, the, as I mentioned, the Book of Mormon was published just a few weeks before the uh, church was organized. And it was an important missionary tool. You had so many people who joined the church because they read and believed in the Book of Mormon. And then, of course, the uh, Mormonism turned out to be such an important uh, religion in American history with the saints going west and taking such an important role in uh, westward settlement. So the Book of Mormon really is, is crucial to, to that subsequent history.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I, w- I wanted to ask you something else, Larry. So now that you've done all this research and you've been doing it you know, for several years and this is part of your career, in your opinion – why has the Book of Mormon been a book of intrigue and controversy for almost 200 years? I mean, it's been almost 200 years and we're still talking about it. I mean, there's so many books being published on the Book of Mormon. Mormon studies is really growing. Oxford University Press, which again your book is published under, they have public, they're kind of now one of the major foundational publishers of, you know, Mormon studies and they produce great books. So, why is there so much intrigue on the book of mormon and mormonism and why is there still so
0: much controversy about this book i think there are two reasons among others that strike me and one is that joseph smith claimed to have a physical artifact associated with the book you know kind of the the primary text which was the plates so that put it that put the book of mormon kind of in a separate category than other Writings that were inspired, you know believed to have been inspired by God and second is the rather than just claiming that the Book of Mormon contained important religious truths uh, Joseph Smith claimed that it was uh, historical in the sense that uh, Moroni the angel who appeared and informed uh, Joseph Smith of the plates and who was one of the authors of, of those plates Uh, gives a historical tie uh, where basically the Book of Mormon itself insists that it is a real history of some of the inhabitants of this continent. So I think those, the artifact itself and the fact that it it claims a uh, historicity have made it very controversial and uh, interesting to people. And so you have on both sides of the issue, uh, you have people who raise objections to the uh, histor- you know, the, the claimed historicity of the Book of Mormon, and those who claim support for the idea. and And both sides do extensive research and are quite convinced that their position is true. So you've got that controversy, and then you've got the fact that so many people have uh, been converted. To a form of Mormonism, whether it's the Community of Christ or the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or some of the other religions, it was reading the Book of Mormon that helped convince them of the truth of the religion. So there's really a lot going on there. And I think the Book of Mormon is kind of unique in that regard in American history.
1: Yeah. It's almost like, I mean, I know it's been talked about quite a bit, but it really is the American Bible. I mean, there's really no other equivalent. Sure. You bet. Very interesting. So while you were working on this book, was there anything that you weren't expecting to find or something that really shocked you or surprised you? I mean, because there was quite a bit for me while I was reading it. But for you, I mean, you, you were really in the nitty gritty with the Joseph Smith papers. Did you find anything while putting the book together that, was, that really kind of surprised you or shocked you?
0: Well, as I mentioned, one thing that really surprised me was that there weren't any documents in that 1823 to 1827 uh, time period. And then the other thing that surprised me was that Joseph Smith himself wrote so little. There's, there's so little that's recorded in his handwriting. To me, that's surprising because there are so many uh, histories of the church he, you know, several histories that Joseph himself commissioned and asked to be done, but he did not do them himself. And you, you had people like uh, John Whitmer and John Coral back in the 1830s who were both assigned uh, to do histories. And then, of course, the uh, history of the church, uh, part of which has been uh, canonized in the uh, Pearl of Great Price which is a uh, a volume of scripture uh, that's uh, held by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so there have been many, quote, histories of the church, but very little actually written in Joseph Smith's hand. So uh, you immediately have a difficulty there of trying to understand how these histories Uh, were produced, and who actually did the writing. Let me point out, let me grab a book here. There's a very good uh, source on this, a great book that I recommend, and it's called Foundational Texts of Mormonism, Examining Major Early Sources, edited by Mark Ashurst McGee, uh, Robin Scott Jensen, and Sherilyn Howcroft. And it has a number of essays on the uh, kind of the essential uh, primary documents of Mormonism and how they were produced. And I think that's a, uh, that book is a great way of understanding how uh, the various, the, the present attitude toward um, Mormon history and the present work being done by scholars, how that was all shaped by these, these early texts.
1: Yeah. One thing again one, another thing your book brings out is it, it shows it goes to show you how elusive the historical craft actually is. It's not it's not a hard science in the fact that I mean like you said there's a lot of bias, there's a lot of uh, weighing of sources and you, you, it, historians basically just have to do the best they can with what they have at the time. And
0: it, Oh, you bet. <laughs> I think that's very true. That's exactly what you do. You <laughs> do your best with what you have, you know. And uh Every primary document has something missing, something you wish they had said, or it has some contradiction with another primary document. Let me give you a good example from the the Lewis and Clark world. And uh, this was, as I said, this was an event where Lewis and Clark and uh, about four other members of the expedition were keeping daily journals. But of course, they weren't, they didn't necessarily record right on the spot. Sometimes we know from uh, people who have really studied this, that sometimes they recorded their quote, daily entry later. So you immediately have that problem. But uh, early in the expedition, uh, John Coulter, who later became a famous explorer after the expedition, he was out hunting and he... uh, Afterwards, he had this encounter with Lakota Indians in present South Dakota, and they almost, uh, Lewis and Clark and the Indians, almost engaged in a battle where uh, many on both sides could have been killed. And uh, the various journalists kept a record of what happened that day, and uh, some of them just mentioned a hunter who had been out hunting, and some of them mentioned Coulter by name, but when it came to the results, of his hunt, none of the uh, journalists agreed. One would say he killed two elk, one would say he killed an elk and a deer, uh, one would say he killed two deer and an elk, that kind of thing. So you have uh, four different versions, and these are people who are well acquainted and know the difference between a deer and an elk, and they were on the scene, and yet on that detail, their accounts don't agree, and that's exactly the situation any historian is looking at when they attempt to get at, quote, what happened. It is very elusive, and it's it's challenging. You know, it's fun.
1: Yeah, and then and then with your book, you just throw religion into that as well, and that just complicates things as, as more. And I appreciate it. In your introduction, you had even talked about that. You had said, you know, uh, you weren't here to talk about, you know, to to whether like faith promote or to, you know, to faith bash, you just wanted to present the sources. You didn't, you didn't want to kind of weigh things one way or the other. You're just going to present them as they were, give good historical introductions. And I really appreciated that. I mean, I see this book as a major primer for anybody who's going to do basically anybody who's going to write about the book of Mormon. Now they have to reference your book. They just can't ignore it. And it's a huge service that you've done for scholars that want to study early Mormonism in the Book of Mormon. I mean, it's just, there's no, there's no way they can't reference your book anymore. So thank you for doing
0: that. Oh, I really appreciate that. And, you know, I don't think it's the role of the historian to make a conclusion about the truth of a religious claim, because uh, especially, you know, when we're talking about revelation and angels, for example, that is not really something that the historian documents. It's a religious activity uh, to document that experience. And I believe that uh, the historian deals with empirical realities. And so when Joseph Smith talks about uh, seeing an angel, that's a personal religious experience that the historian really cannot evaluate in terms of empirical values. Since uh, seeing an angel is not part of common human experience, I think it lies in the area of religion rather than in the uh, area of history, that claim about seeing an angel. Whereas the role of the historian is to document what Joseph said and what other people on the scene said. But I believe concluding whether or not Joseph actually saw an angel is a personal religious matter. And I don't believe historians, I don't believe it's their role to make a judgment on that. Yeah. And I would add, now, if we have evidence uh, of a person claiming to see an angel and we think they're guilty of fraud, or we think there was mental illness involved or hallucination or anything like that, I think that's fair game for the historian if the historian has solid uh, empirical testimony, you know, relating to that. Yeah. So there's no doubt that as soon as you bring in, you know, it's hard enough with Lewis and Clark, but as soon as uh, you bring in religion, then you're you're really dealing with some uh, tremendous difficulties in trying to write a history of, of the period. Yeah.
1: This is fascinating, Larry. I really appreciate you letting me pick your brain on this. This is we are getting a glimpse of, of how you put this book together and just on the Book of Book of Mormon history in general. So thank you. Oh you so, yeah. <laughs> so you know, again, I just want to let the listeners know we're talking with Larry Morris, who've published this great uh, documentary history called A Documentary History of the Book of Mormon, published by Oxford University Press. Again, it's a great book. Definitely should get it if you're interested in the Book of Mormon. It is one of the foundational books now. It is uh like I said, I don't think scholars can overlook this book. And 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 Larry did most of the work for us, thankfully. I mean, he, all, the, all those primary documents are right there, ready for people to look at. He's got these great historical introductions. It's just the bibliography. Everything's just phenomenal, the sources. So thank you, Larry, for doing that. Oh,
0: thanks very much.
1: <laughs> so... Larry, before I let you go tonight, what information, or, or I wanted to say, like what information or what research are you working on now, and what can we expect to learn from you in the near future?
0: Well, uh, now I'm working on a narrative history rather than a documentary history, and I'm dealing with some Mormon pioneers uh, during the 1800s. Uh, the book I have planned, I haven't written it yet, but the book I'm planning and researching would start around 1810 and end around 1890, so it covers most of the uh, 19th century, and I'm not quite ready to announce that. I like to have an an agreement with a publisher before I go public uh, with uh, plans to do a book. Okay. Once I did have a contract... For a book about John Coulter, and I announced that publicly, and it never developed. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> At least that one didn't. Later on, I co authored a book about Coulter, but the one that I had signed a contract for didn't develop. So I like to be a little careful about announcing things, you know?
1: Okay. Well, you're leaving us on a cliffhanger, so that's good. (laughs) Well, Larry, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Again, it's a documentary history of the Book of Mormon, a fantastic book. And Larry, just really appreciate you uh, talking with us. Thank you so much.
0: I really appreciate being asked. Take care. Thanks a lot. Bye.